Welcome to White Snake Fast. This is Metal Mike, and this episode is devoted to David Coverdale and White Snake. I brought in a special co-host, Steve Perkins, from the Wild Man and Steve Show, and together we revisit some key moments in Coverdale's career. We go head to head, and we try to figure out the superior album, White Snake 1987, or Slip of the Tongue. We also bring in White Snake member Joe Holstra. We talk about his killer new album, Joe Holstra's 13 Running Games, and we get an insider's view from the White Snake camp. Check it out. Well, Steve, welcome back to the 80s Glam Metal Cast, and uh, this is going to be a special White Snake episode, so I know that makes you happy. Dude, I could not be more happy. <laughs> <laughs> So, just if people don't know, Steve's part of a podcast, uh, the Wild Man and Steve Show. Now, was, was, where's Wild Man? Is he in timeout right now, or what's going on? You know what? I had to send Wild Man off to his room. He's got some homework to do. <laughs> well, he's probably not as crazy about White Snake as we are. So, you know, I, he, he loves all the '80s bands, uh, secular, Christian, otherwise. But uh, I don't think he's quite uh, at the fever pitch of White Snake, uh, at least the way I am. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of White Snake, so you're pretty hardcore into this band. How did this obsession start? So it started for me in 1987 with the Columbia Record and Tape Club. I don't know if you re- remember that. Oh, yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was this tape club deal, right? You, you buy so many albums, uh, like, for a penny, right? And then you're in the club, and then you get these mailers every month with the new releases and and so forth. And I never forget getting this, the Columbia Record and Tape Club mailer, and there was this album by this band called White Snake, and the description was that they sounded Zeppelin-esque. Mm. I'll never forget this. They sounded Zeppelin-esque, and I'm like, okay, uh, hey, that's worth trying. I'll, I'll get that one. And at the same time, I'll never forget the same order I got uh, U2's um, Joshua Tree. So here comes White Snake 87 and U2's Joshua Tree in the same mailing to me. <laughs> I listened to the U2 and I'm like, okay, whatever. I put in the White Snake and fell in love. <laughs> it was like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. And then I began to dig in. And of course, in those days, it was through the music magazine. Uh, you know, we didn't have the internet. And so learning through the music magazines, hey, these guys have actually been around for a while. And so come to find out there's all these other albums. And so I start digging back through and getting the whole back catalog. And from there, it's just off to the races. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because most people, myself included, you know, I thought this was a new band, White Snake. I was not aware of their past. And uh, I saw White Snake open up for Motley Crue, which was an awesome show, my first concert. But once again, it also created that illusion like this is a new band. It's an opening band. And then, you know, I'd be going to record stores and all of a sudden I'd see all these different albums from White Snake and some were from the early 80s and some were from the late 70s. So I started to learn that, you know, this is a classic band. And obviously, we, you know, you learn the history, you know, of uh, Coverdale being in Deep Purple. So there's a lot of history there. But yeah, that, you know, I think for most of us, uh, in the states it's the 87 album that, that got us that's when we got bit by the snake i think oh I, I, absolutely and, and you're exactly right you know for me so I, was, I was born in 68 okay i'll go ahead and say this on the air I was born <laughs> in 1968 uh and so you know growing up in the 70s but still a, really a little kid i didn't know any of this stuff at all really uh and so it was white snake 87 
that really opened me up to then the other bands once I started digging back through that exactly like you said I discovered Deep Purple who to this day is is one of my all time favorite bands uh, and then ultimately that took me back to the blues actually mm-hmm. American blues from the from the twenties and thirties but I came to all of that stuff because of that White Snake album and so yeah I backtracked through the the, the decades then but uh, came to love all of it so obviously like we said they did a lot of albums in the late seventies early eighties but for time's sake uh, you know I, I, we we could have a four hour podcast we'll do a part two maybe down the road but we'll start. In 1984, was slided in, and I think at this point, this is kind of the groundwork that would get us to the 1987 album because a lot of work's being done to try to break this band in the U.S. Uh, John Sykes is brought in, uh, MTV's playing videos by these guys, so this is kind of the beginning of what would be a real huge takeover for this band. What are your thoughts on that, Steve? Oh uh, yeah, it's a great album. I think it's the first of the Geffen albums. Uh, you know, they they, they changed. Uh, record companies at that point um you're right you've got the, the early videos in fact there's an early video compilation uh called foreplay uh of course uh, david coverdale loves his play on words uh it's four videos and uh so you've got I think you've got uh, loving no stranger on there you've got guilty of love um and you know a couple other songs from that uh slide it in album that to me is you're right. It's the start of it. To me, it's the it's still hard rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is. It hasn't moved into the glam metal. No. Uh, that that the '87 album and then the uh, uh, slip of the tongue would be. So it's still that hard rock. You've got quite a bit of bluesy sound in there, uh, but just absolutely incredible. Quite a punch in the face. Uh, love that album. Yeah, and there's a lot of great songs on it. Obviously, like Love Ain't No Stranger and Slow and Easy were, were you know, minor hits in the U.S., and they pretty much sounded in line with what was going on, you know, with the 80s hard rock and heavy metal. But then there's other songs like Gambler and Give Me More Time. They actually sound like they could work in the 70s. Like, they sound like 70s hard rock to an extent. So I think they're, this is like the... Um, transition album right so some of the old blues 70s rock is still there but then we've got some 80s sensibility so so we've got a little mix of, of both sides of white snake at this point yeah yeah absolutely it sounds like by the time we get to 1987 uh the plan by john Kladner at geffen uh he also had a plan for aerosmith which worked very successfully with permanent vacation but the plan is to get white snake full-on, big in the 80s. And what happens with this whole project, as people know, is that Coverdale got really sick. He got a severe sinus infection that pretty much derailed him for quite a while, and he wasn't able to sing or do anything like that. And it almost looked like the whole thing was falling apart. The whole band was gone, um, and he kind of was starting over. And basically what was created was an 80s metal supergroup with guys like Adrian Vandenberg, Vivian Campbell, Rudy Sarzo, Tommy Aldridge. I mean, this was just like, once this got onto video and came out, I mean, this is like metal, hair metal overload. What do you think? Oh, oh, it, it was incredible. It was the sound and it was the look. I mean, it, you know, I, it was MTV made for Whitesnake or was Whitesnake made for MTV? <laughs> you tell me. You know, it, was, it was that perfect time. And, uh, you know, these guys, it, it looked, David Coverdale is, the front man's front man. Okay, this guy knows how to put on a show. And so when you've got MTV suddenly bringing the visual in a way that we've never really had it before, you're not going to see your band unless you go to a concert, you know, prior to MTV. Uh, and so suddenly you've got that visual 
you got Coverdale, who's this incredible front man, great presence. But then all the guys, right? They got the great teased out hair, you know, you know, Aquanet by the case, uh, you know, and so you got that going on. But like you said, the musicianship, uh, all those guys, everyone that you name, uh, has such a solid, you know, resume coming into that album and that band. Uh, it just was is the perfect storm. Yeah, really. I mean, I think, you know, when we think of the 87, you know, from really from probably 87 to 89 is the pinnacle of hair metal. So, you know, they're hitting it right at the right time. MTV's loving this. They're loving the way the videos look. They're playing them constantly. It, it Right. I think you nailed it. It was the, the perfect storm for these guys. Uh, but do you think that this album alienated fans of their old sound? Oh, I know it did. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know it did. In fact, you go on the, the, the fan sites today, uh, and it's funny, especially if you go on uh, Facebook, there's so many Deep Purple fan sites, but uh, the one main Deep Purple fan site uh, where people talk about all of the, the, the spinoffs of Deep Purple, uh, you know, Rainbow and Dio and White Snake and all this kind of stuff, and, and everybody loves to talk about that stuff. Boy, there is a division. Uh, in those fans between the, you know, the, the first white snake of 78, uh, up through, you know, maybe right, right up through and possibly including even slide it in. And then there's the 87 album and everything afterward, right? Mm-hmm. There's this huge divide and a lot of people love the one and hate the other. You also have people who love it all. I'm certainly in that latter category. I love it all. They're wildly different. Yes, they're different. Uh, and, and I love both of them. Uh, but uh, there's a huge difference there, and people who really wanted that blues rock, they kind of felt betrayed. They felt it was just, you know, pretty boys playing the MTV, you know, and, and, and going the more screaming route with the vocals and that sort of thing, but I don't know. It worked for me. And let's face it, there's only one way a band is going to survive uh, through multiple decades, and that's to change. You know, I mean, you saw it with Kiss. I mean, Kiss had a certain sound in the 70s, which was a more hard rock sound. They took their makeup off, and they did a more of a metallic sound in the 80s. So, you know, Aerosmith, same thing. You can't put Permanent Vacation next to some of their 70s albums. So, so I think this is how you survive. And look at the Rolling Stones. It would be an even, even better example. I mean, they, these guys, they know what to do in each decade. They have to update their sound. So, I mean, I don't think White Snake did anything out of character with any other band that was from the 60s or 70s. No, they absolutely didn't. And, you know, we've talked about this, uh, you and I and, uh, and Wildman, when we talked about Stripe. Here's the thing. You may not like what they do. Well, that's fine. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. But these guys are musicians. They're artists. They want to create. They don't want to just do the same old thing. Now, they could do that, right, if that's what the record company would love them to do, the same old thing over and over and over again. They'd like it. The record company likes you to take your first platinum album and just make that same album mm-hmm. ten more times. But if these guys are real musicians, they're going to break out. They're going to experiment. They're going to do different things. And I think as a real music fan, you've got to respect that. Again, you may not like it, and that's certainly your each individual's preference. But I think you've got to respect these individuals as artists who say, hey, you know what, we want to try something a little bit different on this album. Now, one thing about this album, there's two songs that are re-recorded that were on the Saints and Sinners album, and that's Crying in the Rain and Here I Go Again. And it sounded like it was the urging of David Geffen that said, you know, you guys got to revisit Here I Go Again. And when you think about it, 
I think that I, I don't think I know I, that I'll, that song's the game changer for this album. Don't you think so? Oh, there's no question about it. Now it's not my favorite track on the album. I, although I listen, I fall in love deeply. Okay, and I fell in love with the whole album. I love every single track. It's not my favorite, uh, but it was the. I would say it was the runaway hit. You, you know, I think Still of the Night is the much more powerful anthem. Of course, it's the one they clo- they've closed out every, you know, concert since then with that one. Uh, but Here I Go Again was the big radio song. And, it, you know, you go on your local pizza hut, right? You said, like, spending <laughs> that one on the jukebox. Uh, so, yeah, it was clearly the big breakaway for them. Yeah, and I mean, once again, you're always looking for that crossover. That was a crossover that, you know, it was play, being played on pop stations. It's getting played on rock stations. So, yeah, good call putting that on there because I think that's pretty much what drove that album into the uh, stratosphere of platinum-selling albums. No question. No question. When you get to Slip of the Tongue, so this is where it's a hard album to follow up the the self-titled album, right? So, I mean, I think this is something that, that a lot of bands face. You get this mega-hit album, how do we follow it up? And with Slip of the Tongue, uh, we've got Vivian Campbell's out of the band, and they bring in Steve I, and by some kind of twist of fate, Adrian Vandenberg hurts his wrist, and Vi plays on the whole album. So what are your thoughts on Steve Vi? Is he the right fit for White Snake? Okay, this is going to be a little little dicey. I don't think so. Okay. Now, again, I, I, I like the album. I thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, you know, you and I were talking the other day. Uh, you know, Vi has, has, has pointed out this is the first album. Every single song was recorded with a seven-string guitar. Uh, he, he had this seven-string uh, custom-made for him, and that had that never been done before. Vi is, is virtuoso. Uh, when I think about Steve Vi, to me, I put he and Ingve Malmsteen occupy the same place in my brain. Uh, these really virtuoso kind of players, which I love. I love that. To, that wasn't really quite all White Snake to me. E- e- even from the 87 album, to me, the 87 still was a little bit just, I don't know, a little bit more grounded. It felt a little bit more um, just coming from the gut a little bit more. Uh, some of this just went off into uh, the, the stratosphere with uh, Steve's playing. Again, thoroughly enjoyed it. It isn't quintessential White Snake for me. Right. And I think I know where you're going, you know, and I, and I, I agree with you because I think, you know, White Snake is, tends to be a little bit more bluesier and Steve I's not that much of a bluesy player. But for me, I'm going to say, and I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb, and, I, and I'm going to say that he kind of makes the album for me. I feel like he adds an element that is very unique. And I think when you go back to the music that he's done with David Lee Roth, it's the same kind of a thing. He's he's kind of quirky, and when he's on his solo realm, he's he, he kind of really goes in some strange directions, and that's not for everybody. But I think when you can kind of put him in a, a more of a straightforward band, like something like Roth or something like White Snake, I think it adds a really unique element because when you, no matter what, and Steven, you'll probably agree, if, if you listen to that, it doesn't really sound like anything else. It's very unique. So maybe it didn't work for White Snake or it's not the traditional you know, White Snake sound, but it's pretty damn unique. Oh, I, oh absolutely. A- absolutely. And I think when you hear that album, if, here's the thing, if you, if you really know your artist, you're going to recognize that that's Steve Vai. Mm-hmm. If you don't know your, your musician, you're still going to say, that's something different. Yeah. I haven't heard that before. Because Steve Vai's always been known for a lot of the sound effects. You know, you've got like, uh, Kitten's Got Claws. I think he's doing cat sound effects. 
uh, Wings oh, of the yeah. Storm. He's doing, uh, you know, Sounds of the Wind and all this kind of stuff. And he does a lot of multi-guitars. I think he. I think it's tasteful though. I think it works, and uh, I I really like that album. And I okay. So now let's talk about the album, be, be even beyond the guitar playing. One thing, and we're probably going to disagree here, but I actually like Slip of the Tongue better than the '87 album. I feel it, it feels more like a band, um, like a solid band at this point. And I think there's more dimensions to the songs, uh, especially I think there's some some heavier elements that you don't hear. You know, on the '87 album, and then a song like um, "Sailing Ships." That's an amazing song, and you don't have any kind of song like that on the uh, on the '87 album. Oh, I think it's a fair point. I think uh, musically and lyrically, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think you look at "Sailing Ships." I think you look at uh, "Judgment Day." Oh, "Judgment Day" is uh, amazing. Some people might find that the mix of songs actually a bit jarring. Okay, so I mean, you've got some real, you know. Barroom sleazy songs, <laughs> yeah. slow folk music, deep and nasty. Yeah, uh, kittens got claws, uh, and then you've got these really deep poetic pieces. Yeah, uh, you know, I, actually, uh, the, the last, uh, um, uh, not the last three, but um, uh, Wings of the Storm, uh, Judgment Day, and Sailing Ship. You go, how is that on the same album with slow folk music? Right? <laughs> so you know, as, as a whole, it's it, that, that's a little bit odd, but certainly. Uh, there, there's a depth there. I think they came back to that in their most recent album, Flesh and Blood. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a couple tracks on there that have got some of that sort of almost, I don't want to say mystical exactly, but, but it's definitely a, uh, uh, there's, there's an atmosphere to it. There's a real feel to the lyric and to the, um, to the music that goes with it. Now, when you, when you talk about this album, I've read some mixed comments from different band members. I've, all, I've read that Adrian Vandenberg thinks that Steve Vai did a great job with the guitars. Then I've seen other blurbs where he said it wasn't as bluesy as maybe it could have been. And, you know, and if, and if he was on it, it would have been a little bit different or, or maybe more White Snake appropriate. Uh, I've read different things with Coverdale's comments too. Coverdale said, um, you know, I don't know if this was, you know, our best or, or the right album for us. But then I think with the reissues, he's kind of like so many people over the years have said, this is an amazing album, and you know what? They're right. So I think time changes your point of view. Obviously, if if everybody's digging it and and, and nobody's you know shaming the album, it's got there's got to be some value there, you know. Oh, oh, I, absolutely. And and I think you know you bring up a really good point there. For any of us who've been listening to this music over the years and now you know into the decades, really, uh, it is interesting to to think about how we respond to the music over time. Um, you know, I, I've always said I fall in love quickly when it comes to music. I'll, I'll hear something once and go, oh, my goodness, that's the best thing I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, two, three months down the line, I might be going, yeah, I was wrong about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I fell in love a little too quickly there. Uh, but then you come back a few years later also and say, well, how do I hear it now? And uh, as I was talking with you before we started the show, I was re-listening to these albums just today and, you know, Slip of the Tongue, is, it, it is good. It, it, it's a solid album. I really, you know, here we are in uh, the 21st century now, and uh, it's still an enjoyable album to listen to. And, and the other thing is it doesn't sound, to me, it does not sound unduly dated. No. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I agree. There's some albums that go, oh, my gosh, that was clearly in the mid-60s. Right. Oh, my gosh, it sounds like the 50s, you know. I don't know that this really necessarily just sounds 80s. I think it, it's got some a little, little timelessness to it. 
It, you know, and, and there's a couple of thoughts as you were talking that were coming to my head. I think that sound production was really peaking in the late 80s, early 90s. So you're hearing music that is a top-notch production at this point. You know what I mean? So, that, And I think it's – and that's why it still sounds good because you can go back and listen to from the uh, albums from the 60s. They don't sound good. Let's just be honest. You know what I mean? It's the, the equipment and the level of, of the you know quality of the equipment at this point. But another thing – uh, I was thinking about that you mentioned is your point of view changes over time. It really does. I can think back to certain albums. Um, Europe is a band that comes to mind. I always thought the final countdown was their amazing album. And then over time, I, I thought now that the album after that, Out of This World, is a better album. So your tastes change. And another example of this is my kids are big into the Beatles. There was, I think, an interview with uh, Lennon in 1980 before he died. And they were asking him about almost every track that the Beatles ever did and a lot of the songs John Lennon said he hated you know I hate this song or uh or this was one of Paul's granny songs he would call it you know and like maybe like old-fashioned but I always tell my kids that was his point of view in 1980 what if John Lennon would have lived what would he be thinking of these same songs today his opinion I can guarantee would have changed on a lot of them maybe not all of them but I think time changes us experiences in our life changes us so yeah like I said maybe there was a time in the 90s where maybe Coverdale wasn't feeling the slip of the tongue album but then you get to you know 2021 and he feels differently well you know the best example of that is George Lucas and his own reaction to <laughs> Star Wars yeah yep you know and, and, and how many times has, has Lucas gone back <laughs> And, and edited or messed with, depending on your perspective, you know, uh, the original Star Wars movies. One thing we've got to mention about this late 80s era of White Snake is, you know, I mean, Tawny Katane was a big part of the videos. And my question to you is, who had better hair, her or Coverdale? <laughs> oh, co- co- Coverdale. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was a picture of them from, like, I seen it. It was like they were at a music awards thing together, and I was like, they almost have the same hairdo. Uh, they have giant curly yeah. hair. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it was the 80s, yeah. man. It, everything, you know, it was normal. It was normal to have that big, long hair. Oh, absolutely. Speaking of hair, DDR Music Group is the premier glam, sleaze, and hair metal label. They've got a kick-ass roster consisting of tons of bands that you remember from the 80s Sunset Strip. Bands like Electric Angels, Blondes, Sweet Savage, Cats and Boots, Jailhouse, Jet Boy, and many more. Well, maybe you're just looking for something that you've never heard before. Some rare or modern hair metal. Well, they've got that too. Go discover rare and hard-to-find glam, sleaze, and hair metal CDs at ddrmusicgroup.com. Hey guys, this podcast takes a lot of time and effort. I want to do more in-depth projects on here, but I can't do it without your help. Just Google 80s Glam Metalcast on Anchor. Once there, hit the support button and you can donate 99 cents, $4.99, or $9.99 a month. Your support will ensure that this podcast will be rocking out for years to come. Thanks for listening. Now here's Joel Holkstra. Joel, so glad you could join us for this special White Snake episode. How you doing tonight, man? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for taking the time out tonight. Awesome. Yeah, no problem. Well, before we jump in the snake pit with you, why don't you tell everybody about your new kick-ass album, Running Games? Uh, yeah, thanks so much. Uh, just came out, uh, what, February 16, I think was the release. Thank gosh. <laughs> <laughs> One day is becoming the next year. Uh <laughs> 
but yeah, you know, it's it's um, a lot of card rock that I think is Dio-ish at its heaviest, Foreigner-ish at its lightest. Uh, got a killer lineup with me. Uh, Russell Allen is uh, singing on it. Uh, Vinny Apice on drums, Tony Franklin on bass, Derek Sherinian on keys, and uh, my buddy Jeff Scott Soto actually sang the backing vocals on it too, which is kind of amazing. So, um, a killer lineup of musicians, great. Uh, you know, just melodic hard rock, man. It's all about the songs, despite me being a guitar player. It's not so much about three-minute guitar solos and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. I mean, the musicianship is killer. The songwriting's uh, killer. And it's funny because, you know, you mentioned, I, I read that, the, what you said about the deal and the foreigner uh, contrast. But when I listen to it, I kind of get the vibe like I'm listening to a killer new band from the late 80s, early 90s that would kind of fit in the scheme of like Lynch Mob and Blue Murder. Am I on the right track with that? Or Oh man, I think anything from that era with good musicianship is kind of in the end what I would appreciate mm-hmm. people saying. <laughs> I think that's awesome. I'd take either one of those comparisons because, you know, George and John are two fantastic players and and uh, both of those bands had great song uh, had great songs. So yeah, I think there there's a couple Lynch Mob comparisons on this one. I think uh, Heart Attack kind of came out with a little Lynch Mob flair to it somehow, and a couple of the riffs here and there. People said, "Oh, that sounds kind of George Lynch," and uh, I, you know the Blue Murder thing, maybe just because of Tony. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, yeah. I mean, I, I did love the, the Blue Murder stuff, but I don't know that I necessarily hear it on this record. Steve, yeah, listen. <laughs> you, you, you had me at Dio and Foreigner, okay? <laughs> I mean, anytime <laughs> I see those, either of those names in a review, I'm going to read the rest of re- the review, and I'm going to want to listen to the album. And just as you said, man, you, you've got such a great lineup. I, I've got to ask the question, though. How, how do you do that? How do you guys, do you guys just have each other all in speed dial or what? I mean, is, is there like, you know, coolrockguys.com and you guys could just go there and, and pull each other together for a session? I mean, how does that work? Well, it's for me, it's the same lineup as the, the Dying to Live album, which I put out under this project name as well, Joel Hoekstra's 13, right? So uh, everybody came back and they wanted to do this second album, so that's a good sign. It means they had a pretty good time the first time around. Uh, and the, I mean, the way it came together for Dying to Live was, uh, Tony Franklin and I had just finished doing a different project together called VHF. And I told him I had this idea of doing something that was my album, but having it sound like a band. And I said, you know, we'll give it a project name or something. And, uh, he was into it. I really wanted to do all the writing and kind of be the guy who was in charge for a change and just be able to, uh, just kind of call the shots. I mean, you know, I love being a part of all the bands I'm in, but every once in a while, it's kind of good to be that guy. So, yeah, there you go. It started with Tony, and he recommended Vinny on drums, and right at that time, Russell was joining TSO. And I thought, well, here's the perfect singer. You know, this guy can sing Dio, he can sing Foreigner, he can sing Paul Rogers. I mean, this is like, you know, this is the guy. And then Derek Sherinian on keyboards is an absolute, you know, no-brainer as far as, like, who do you get? I mean, great sounds, uh, killer parts. Uh, and on this particular album, I made a lot of room for to play solos as well. So it gives me, like, somebody to um, duel with a little bit, you know? It gives me a foil over there. So uh, it's not just guitar solo. Here comes the guitar solo, you know? Anyway, yeah, so great lineup of guys. Um, and then as far as the material goes, man, just trying to approach it like a listener, you know? Like, where am I? what do I want to hear? I want to hear good songs. I don't, even guitar players, you know, we get bored by the long guitar solos. So <laughs> <laughs> it's... Yeah, it's just all about the songs for me on this stuff, man. I just want to give people like good, 
uh, good rock albums, man. That's it, you know? You know, there's some albums out there that I feel that start off really strong and then they kind of fizzle out as you get to the end. But for me, this album, it keeps getting better as I go along. Like, I feel like I loved Hard to Say Goodbye, but then when I hit, like, Heart Attack and Fantasy and Lonely Days, it was just, like, killer, man. And I think Fantasy... That's probably my favorite song. I just think that's so catchy. I love the vibe to it. That one's got you know a little bit of the Dio vibe in the verses, but the chorus is just catchy as hell. Uh, for me, man, like I said, I run the 80s glam metal cast, so this kind of music is just right up my alley. Cool. Thanks, man. I think you know I needed to find the balance between stuff that was really melody-driven and also some stuff that was really riff-driven. You know, if you... If you write the stuff too melodic, it can t- kind of turn off some of the heavier fans that are looking for the blues-based rock that I'm a part of with White Snake, and um, and vice versa. You know, you get too heavy, and then the melodic rock fans are like, you know, it's not melodic enough. So, trying to find the balance between the heavy and the uh, the hooky, I guess, right? And uh, hopefully, I did that with this one. I think you just got your next album title: The Heavy and the Hooky. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, maybe, maybe. We'll see. We'll see how that plays out. (laughs) That's definitely funny. Well, we're we're all pretty close in age from what I can tell, and I'm interested to hear from you, Joel. Like, what are some of the bands that you were really into, like, that came out, like, in the late 80s? So I started out very much into, like, you know, the hard rock, heavy metal, ACDC, Black Sabbath, Ozzy, Iron Maiden, Scorpions, uh, and then I would say, you know, bands that were also really big with me as I got older that I always, I always forget to mention, but, you know, Dokken and Queensryche, mm-hmm. those bands were big uh, for me. Um, but I definitely branched out into melodic, mellower bands like Journey, Boston, Foreigner. Uh, I definitely loved Rush and Yes, and I definitely loved all the guitar records that were coming out back then. You know, I, I listened to all that stuff, the Ingve and, and Satriani and Vi and Steve Morse. And, um, I like classic rock stuff. You know, the, the Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, uh, Jimi Hendrix. It's kind of like you, you mash all that stuff together and you get, you get where my mindset is as, as far as rock goes, you know. And I think what's important, and you mentioned this with what you do, you know, what you do with your music, but even like with stuff like Ingve, I mean, Ingve is a shredder, but he always had killer songs. And you know, when he had albums with, especially the one with Joe Lynn Turner, that's a song-driven I album. Think, I think know? so too. I, I think he gets kind of a bad rap for like the songs on those albums. I see all the time people are like, you know, there's no good songs. I'm like, what? Those albums totally had good songs. Uh, I like I like a lot of the songs on the trilogy record yep. with uh, Mark Bowles too. I thought that there was some good songs on there and, and even the first couple I thought you know those those songs really rock in their own way I mean he was the only cat coming forward with I am a Viking you know what I mean like it, it was it was it was so ingay but it was awesome I mean stuff rocked I thought I thought it was cool let's bring it back to White Snake so ultimately you get into white snake and you're currently in white snake what's it like working with david and the guys oh man david's just great you know uh just great boss great bandmate great friend uh been really good to me the, the entire time um just really you know i have nothing but gratitude man as far as the whole situation goes of white snake we've, we've been able to have a the same lineup the whole time i've been in there um, so it's great to work with these guys like David and Tommy who have such an amazing 
history in, in rock and roll. And, you know, Reb, too, has quite uh, an amazing history. And, and then you got guys like myself, Michael Devin and Michaela that are um, just a little bit more, like, you know, happy to be there and just, you know, making names for themselves. And so it's all good, man. You know, we got a great, great mix of guys there. And, uh, and David is, it starts at the top, man. David's a good dude. Well, you know, White Snake has so often been a two guitar band, right? And I've got an interesting question for you here. If you think back to the other guitarists that have been in White Snake, and I'm going to throw some names out at you. Who would you really like to have had a chance to play with? And I'm going all the way back. You had Mickey Moody, Ernie Marsden, right? You had Mel Galley, John Syke, uh, Adrian Vandenberg, Vivian Campbell, Steve Vigan, you just you know mentioned. Of those guys that have gone through uh, the great and mighty White Snake, which one would you love to have played with? Oh, man, I can't really do that just because, I mean, it's, you know, going to disrespect any of the others there's just, just such a great history in the band all the players that have been through and i think everybody brings something different to the table so i mean as much as you'd love to get one name out of me i just can't really do it you know i mean i think everybody's got their own strengths in there and uh every every player that's been through there but i'd be honored to work with any of them quite honestly well let me follow that up then and that you know what i really respect your answer on that too because and, and let's be honest i'm sure you've gotten questions like that before and everybody wants to hear those kinds of things but you know being a, a really a professional musician who respects the work of other professionals actually that was really the best answer uh to that uh, let me ask you this what were some of the challenges in in picking up some of the songs from the maybe the back catalog uh, of White Snake, did you find anything particularly challenging, or you're going, oh, dude, I knew that riff anyhow. That's a no-brainer. Um, well, I mean, there's always differences in terms of the live arrangements and things like that. I would say that's uh, that's always the most challenging thing. You might be used to listening to a studio version of a song, but then. Uh, the smart thing to do when you join a band is get with the most recent version of it. Like get a board tape or a live recording, right? So uh, a lot of times it's just stuff like that, just learning the, the current live arrangement of the song. And, you know, you might you might not get as good of a recording in some cases. It might be a board tape. <laughs> so you're trying to learn it off of there, and you're like, I can't hear the guitar, you know, uh, that kind of stuff, you know. But I would say it's that. It's just learning the, the current arrangements, and that's always the, the smartest thing to do when you get the gig. Sorry, rambling on on that answer, but that that's my point. You get the gist of it. Joel, is there a White Snake album that you gravitate to? Because Steve and I earlier just had a discussion where we're, we love the 1987 album. He really likes that one. I really love Slip of the Tongue. You know, I was your typical U.S. kid who like got exposed to the, the Geffen records, mm-hmm. you know, as David calls them, Slide It In, uh, and uh, the 87 album, and uh, oh my God! Slip of the tongue. <laughs> How tired am I? <laughs> but I would say of of those, and, and then of course, you know, when I joined the band, I got into the whole catalog and listened to everything and checked everything out. And, but you know, man, for my money, it's like you know that perfect thing of the, the late '80s and just and getting to know White Snake. And the one that I wore out the most is definitely the '87 record. So, Steve, you're right, man. It's the '87 album. If Joel says it, it's got to be. <laughs> I, I mean, I hate to, I hate to choose. I hate to choose favorites, you know, because it's like that's you know where people are like, oh man, he's not, you know. But I think that was you could safely say that that one had something special, right? Yeah, 
Oh, big time. Oh, yeah, it went quintuple platinum. So, I mean, it must, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sold, uh, you know, nine trillion copies. So it must have been pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, as we talked about it, it was kind of the perfect storm for the band. You know what I mean? It was, it was the right time. It was the right look, the right videos, the right sounds. It's like the planets aligned for White Snake, you know, that year. And, uh, I mean, the rest is history. Yeah, I think it was, uh, too. I think I, I just uh, maybe the best blend of the, uh, I guess, of the, the 80s pop rock style that was happening with the still blues bass sound, right? Yeah. So... Finding that perfect marriage of those two sounds. I would agree with you. I just think there's something special about that record in particular. Um, but no disrespect to the other ones, you know? I mean, cause I honestly, I, I like every White Snake record. So, um, you know, it just kind of, I, I, for the, for me, I think too, it's, and part of it is probably unbiased cause that's the one I wore out as a kid, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah. that's, those are always going to be the ones that stick with you. And like, you know, I remember being 16 years old and like, playing that cassette every day so yeah absolutely I'm, I'm right there with you you know uh for for so many people that's in fact we talked about this earlier mike and i that you know that was the one that really broke white snake open uh for so many people especially here in the state um you know slided in a lot of people were aware of it but once the 87 hit people like oh my goodness who is this white snake and and so then people even discovered the back catalog because of that album yeah yeah, I would say so. I think that that one, yeah, that it just was huge in the U.S. And I think Slip of the Tongue really, in many of the ways, just kind of rode on the, the coattails, right? Because it was like the, the 87 record was so big, everybody was going to buy Slip of the Tongue, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, we can't wait to buy that one, too. At least, I don't know, as a kid, that was the way. Who knows? And isn't it funny how, yeah. like, when a band gets major success, if they have anything else out, it's like the record company was all ready to reissue all those albums. So, like, anytime I was in a music store, I'd see, you know, Saints and Sinners. Oh, what's this? And then you'd see, the, you know, you'd see all those, the uh, Come and Get It, and all those old White Snake albums. They just kept popping up, uh, and, and they were selling. Those were all selling hot, too, based off the 1987 album. Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh... That's the way it works, right? You hear, hear the band, and then you go, oh, i got to check out these other albums from them, right? Oh, definitely. Well, Joel, man, we really appreciate your insight and your time tonight. Anything you want to say to your fans out there in closing? Oh, just thanks so much, man. I mean, it's it's amazing to be able to uh, get this far in my life, live my dream, and, and uh, appreciate the support. Awesome, Joel. Thanks so much, man. Have a great night. Thanks so much, guys. Have a nice night. Yep, take care. Take care, man. So when we hit the 90s, as we all know, grunge came in, and grunge definitely isn't in line with what White Snake was doing in 87 and 89. So the powers that be at Geffen think it's a great idea to take David Coverdale and mix him with his label mate, Jimmy Page, and do Coverdale Page. What do you think of this pairing? I couldn't wait for it to come out. And I still love it. I, I distinctly remember reading about it in the music magazines. Oh my gosh, Jimmy Page, David Coverdale, doing this project. I remember going to the record stores. I was living in Kansas City, Missouri at the time with my wife. And I remember going to the record stores and saying, hey, you got the new Coverdale Page thing coming out. And like, no, 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 don't have a release date for that yet, you know. And kept checking back, checking back, and finally getting a release date. And I'll never forget picking that up. It's got that beautiful blue cover and that yellow road sign with the two kind of lanes merging together. And mm-hmm. I go, oh, my gosh, this is great, right? Here comes Pagey from Zeppelin merging with David Coverdale and Whitesnake, Deep Purple. Like, oh, my gosh, this is 
a match made in heaven. Couldn't wait to get it. Fun that sucker on, on CD and thought, oh, this is fantastic. Uh, love it then, love it now. I understand there's a, a reworking coming out for 2023. Uh, Paige and uh, Coverdale talked about a reissue, um, re- remastering some of the stuff, and then uh, a couple extra tracks that didn't get uh, on the album, maybe getting included with that. And when that, if that happens, uh, I'm certainly going to get it. Yeah, I mean, I think it was amazing because, you know, I, I'll admit it, I, I like Zeppelin, but I'm not a huge Zeppelin fan. And I think sometimes what steers me away from Zeppelin is it's not as straightforward as I tend to like. And I think Jimmy Page is an incredible guitar player, and I love his riffs. And I think when, what Coverdale brings in is a little bit more of that pop sensibility, uh, a little bit more catchiness uh, to the songs. And I, I mean, I'm going to go out and say it's it's one of the best things either of them have ever done. I think uh, they I think when they work together, especially two talented people, they feed off each other, and their talent just exceeds itself. You know what I mean? And I just think that I, I was actually listening to it before we talked, and I just kept going song for song, and I was like, this is an amazing song. This is an amazing song. You know what I mean? Every song is good. There's there's no throwaways or anything on there. You could tell they really were passionate about what they were doing and took their time to make this album. So, no, it, it's amazing. It really is. Oh, and, and you know, you, you made a good point there. You know, Coverdale does bring that kind of pop sensibility. Certainly not, you know, pop music like Debbie Gibson, you know, so we're going to talk about 80s kind of pop. But, uh, you know, you get a song like, you know, uh, Shake My Tree, mm-hmm. uh, Pride and Joy, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, Feeling Hot. I mean, those are straight-up White Snake kind of lyrics. Yeah. Um but then, you know, interesting as I'm thinking about that, you know, Whisper a Prayer for the Dying. That's another uh, one. Is another one that goes, like on um, the Slip of the Tongue album, uh, as we were saying earlier, one of those that's got a little bit of some more depth and some poetry, really, to the lyrics. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you get you know, Jimmy freaking Page, man. You know, so <laughs> you're yeah. not going to love that. I always like It's Over Now. I just, I like when Coverdale sings in that low voice. It's a pretty cool tune. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, love it. But with the tides of music changing so much, um, like I know, I know MTV played um, Pride and Joy. There was definitely some airplay, uh, video play there. But I just don't think this really cracked through commercially because of the way things were. And unfortunately, probably the two of them, even though Jimmy Page, I would never say he was in a hair metal band, but I think it, I think it came across as hair metal somewhat. You know what I mean by the look and just who both of them were, or Dinosaur Rock, as they like to call it, in the 90s. So I don't know if they could really push through that wall of grunge. No. No, no, grunge stopped it all. There's no question about that. It just was, it wasn't the right time. I think anybody who knows the album, I've seen this in, in numerous fan groups and reviews and so forth. It, it's well-respected album. Uh, people who, who know it really do enjoy it and, and really like it, but... Um, I think you're right, and I think, you know, I don't think there was as much pushback from the Coverdale fans. I think they thought it was all really cool. I think there was some pushback from the Zeppelin fans. Yeah, yeah. And I think the fans of Timmy Page, and, and people were going, oh, man, you're working with David Cover version, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, people always made the Page uh, or the uh, the plant in Coverdale comparison, and I, I've got to be honest, sure, yeah, there's, there's a physical resemblance between uh, the two singers uh, and, and some similarities, some similarities in, in style of singing, but I don't think there's really as much as people like to make it out to be. And so I, I think it also got some pushback from the Zep fans. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just, I don't know if it ever really stood a chance to really break big. 
One interesting thing, and I don't know if people have checked this out, but please, after hearing this, check this out on YouTube. They started their tour in Japan, and they played uh, they played White Snake songs, they played Zeppelin songs, and then they played songs from the album. This stuff sounds phenomenal. Like Coverdale, I don't know if that break from touring or whatever really did him good, but he sounds amazing. He's doing Black Dog, and let's face it, at a certain point, Robert Plant lost the high end of his voice. So there was no way, even at that time, that Plant could match probably the range that Coverdale had at that time. But that stuff sounds killer. Oh, it's fantastic. I've watched it on YouTube as well. Um, you know, we're grateful for whatever footage we've got from that. Uh, it would be great if somebody had some decent footage of that that could maybe be cleaned up and, and, and even get a, a DVD. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, again, there, there weren't enough shows uh my goodness, I would have loved to have seen that live. But from what I've seen in the videos, yeah, it was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, and I don't know what the real story is, but it sounds like somewhere at some point Robert Plant came calling and, and Jimmy Page went back with Plant, which was very successful. But that tour never made it to the States. I think even though we were in the grunge era, I, I still think that tour would have been huge to to have all the White Snake greatest hits and the Zeppelin hits and the Coverdale Page songs. I think that would have been a big tour in the States. Well, I think it would have. You know, right after that, uh, I saw Page and Plant. They were doing a tour together. I think they did that album. Oh, what was it like? A walking into Clarksdale or something like yep, that. Yep, yep. And they did a um, they did a tour together. And I saw them in Austin, Texas. We were living in Austin at the time. Uh, saw them at the Frank Irwin Center, and they, the two of them, they actually played one or two songs from the Coverdale Page album. Yes, yep. And plant plant song. Uh, so, and and as I remember it now, again, that's been quite some time now. Uh, as I remember, the crowd went wild. <laughs> yeah, yes. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I know for a fact they played uh, Shake My Tree. That's You can find that on YouTube. So that that for definitely at least played that song. So this would probably be a great time, Steve, for us to jump into the modern era. So what's great is that Coverdale and Whitesnake have been putting out tons of great albums uh, since the 2000s and beyond. Good to be bad, Forevermore, Flesh and Blood. What do you think of the newer output? Okay, totally excited about uh, Good to Be Bad, totally excited about Forevermore when they came out. Uh, I definitely have some tracks on both of those that I really enjoy. To me, Flesh and Blood is one of their best albums ever. I, I kid you not. I, I just, it is so good. It's just hard. It's in your face. It's fun. And then again, you get some of that subtle stuff. Uh, Heart of Stone, uh, Sands of Time. Uh, are, are songs that are just, again, a little bit deeper, a little bit more poetic. And then, like I say, you get the, the big fun ones, like, Well, I Never. Uh, I, I just love that one. Um, uh, good to see you again. Uh, Shut Up and Kiss Me. Hey, You, You Make Me Rock. I mean, oh, my gosh. This And that, if this album had been right in there with 87 and Slip of the Tongue, there's no question this this sucker would have gone platinum. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's great that the guys are still doing it. I mean, I know that David's talked about, I've heard the word retirement come out of his mouth, but hopefully, you know, they just keep going, doing what they're doing, and they've maybe they've got some more albums in them yet. Yeah, you know, it's funny, all our, all our favorites at some point, they said retirement, and then they didn't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. They, they had the final tour, and then they come back and they tour again, you know, or, or come out with another album, and you're right, Coverdale has said that. Uh, at this point, it definitely seems like he's gotten a second wind. Uh, he's, he's had a lot of fun reissuing 
uh, stuff. Uh, you know, we've just recently had uh, the rock album, the love album, uh, and the blues album. Uh, so re- reworkings of the love songs, uh, classic white snake rock songs, and the more uh, bluesy uh, songs. So he's reissued that stuff. He's had a lot of fun with that. Um, and let's not forget, let's not forget White Snake the Purple album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Where, you know, in, in his own words, he says, you know, it's, he, he want to take the Deep Purple songs that he had done uh, in uh, uh, 73, 74, and uh, 76, and took those some of the songs, and in his own words, let's snake them up a little bit. And uh, that's exactly what they did. I thought the Purple album was stunning. And, uh, in fact, I put together a personal playlist that I called Deep White Purple Snake. And so I would take, I would take the Deep Purple original, follow it by the, the, the one from the Purple album by White Snake. So I would listen to the original and listen to the new one. And boy, I got to tell you, I, I think they just knocked it out of the park with that album. Yeah, I mean, I love the way they did Burn on there. I love Burn all the time. Burn burn all day long. That's a great song. So, yeah, I love that one on there. Well, oh, yeah, I mean, come on. Burn, burn, burn is a classic. I mean, you know, the first, first album that Coverdale did with Deep Purple, 1973, uh, replacing the great Ian Gillen of, of Deep Purple, and it just comes in. And you got to realize... You know, this is true for all of our, our really great rock heroes. You realize these guys were all in their 20s right. when they were making the music that we all love for decades. So in 73, Coverdale was 22 years old. He's 22 when he wrote and recorded Burn. And that is a monster of a song. But then when they, of course, redo it and snake it up, I mean, it just blows the roof off. Well, Steve, this was amazing. We got to talk about a lot of key moments in the White Snake history. We got to speak with Joel about his new album and about being a member of White Snake. I mean, you can't get any better than what we've accomplished here. Dude, there's no better way for me to end my work day uh, than talking with a brother in metal about one of my all-time favorite bands. Yeah, this was great. All right, man. Well, you take care of yourself. Always a pleasure chatting with you. Hey, good talking with you, Metal Mike. Well, that was a great time with Joel and Steve. Go buy Joel Holster's 13 Running Games. It is awesome. Go listen to Wildman and Steve on all podcast platforms as well. Go to Whitesnake.com and get all the updates on what's going on with Whitesnake. And if you need 80s Glam Metal Cast to promote something for you, drop me a line at 80sGlamMetal1 at gmail.com. Consider being a supporter on Anchor. Become a subscriber on YouTube and keep an eye out for weekly live streams on YouTube. Rock on!